Good morning, Crosswalk. Well, we're in a novel situation, aren't we? Now, this hasn't happened before, certainly not within my lifetime or my tenure here at Crosswalk Redlands, but um, we've had to cancel church, so everyone is part of our online community, which in some ways um, is kind of exciting. What we're going to do is we're going to promise that we will curate a online experience that is second to none, that makes you still feel connected and hopefully continues to grow you spiritually when it comes to the content that God has provided for us. We're still going to be in our awakening series. We're in week three, and we're still going to continue to talk about what God is doing as we move towards our Easter um, experience. Now, we don't know if it's going to happen or if we'll still be kind of locked out of what we're doing, but whatever we do, even if it's online, we want you to gather together as families. We want you to gather together even as friends in community and watch Crosswalk and continue to grow. So um, we understand that it's new. We understand that it's different, and we understand that um, this is not our usual way of working, but we're also excited about the content that we're going to be able to create. And so one of the things we're going to ask, I never do this, but one of the things we're going to ask is that if you've got a little extra giving, maybe you could give to our online experience. That's through PushPay. You can do the drop-down menu and check it out. I don't make those pitches very often, and I never do in the sermon, but we're going to have to incur some extra um, costs as we create this online content. So thank you for that. We're just so appreciative of what you're doing. Listen, I thought maybe we could pray today as we begin. Um, So let's bow our heads wherever you are. Unless you're driving, we don't want you to bow your heads then. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, a lot of upheaval, a lot of anxiety. May, as we study your word, you bring a sense of peace and calm to us as we've worshiped you in our individual places, um, while at the same time lifting up your name and lifting up your voice. We ask that you continue to open up our hearts so that we might grab a hold of the words that you have for us, those words that came from the cross. So Lord, thank you again, for who you are. Thank you for this community that continually leans into what it is that you're doing. And Lord, be with our world right now because it's a a place of great anxiety. In your name I pray, amen. So again, we're beginning our awakening series. Uh, Beginning, this is actually week three. Pastor Sam preached to us last week about forgiveness, which was amazing as always. And some of you commented that you loved hearing the second part of that story from Pastor Sam, not from me. Um, I told you he didn't really want to give me first class. If you're just joining us and this is the first time you've been with us online, um, Pastor Sam Lenore and I have a little bit of a back and forth, but don't worry about it. Anyway, he talked a lot about forgiveness, which is phenomenal. Today, we're not talking about forgiveness so much. The words from the cross that we'll be getting are actually um, words about community and about care. And so we're going to jump in, and there's kind of two different sections that we'll be looking at. First, having to do with the Roman soldiers. Secondly, having to do with Jesus and some words he has for his mother and for John. And we will be studying from the book of John today, John chapter 19. So if you've got your Bibles at home, you're looking at BibleGateway.com, pulling them up on your phone, or if you just want to watch, they'll be on our lower third as well. If you're new, again, we're reading from the New Living Translation. That's what we study from here at Crosswalk. So if you want to pull that up, you certainly can. Starting with John chapter 19, verse 23, says this, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. 
Now, what we have to understand is that soldiers always take the spoils from war, right? They always do this. And these soldiers, even though they weren't necessarily in a war, they were kind of the crucifixion team. And one of the benefits of being the crucifixion team is that they would grab a hold of the garments and the things that those who were being crucified had, and they would divide them up and split them up. And so they did that. And normally there's three or four pieces to a robe that was being worn in the first century, but the most important piece was that robe that went across. And of course, it says here, that robe was woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, we're going to stop for a moment because this seems like a relatively straightforward piece of information. But the truth is, there is um, something that's pretty important. In the first couple centuries, people would look at scripture one of two ways. There was kind of two schools of thought. The name of these schools of thought were Alexandria and Antioch for the two places where these schools of thought kind of grew. Origen is probably the greatest theologian from the Alexandria school, and Lucian was probably the greatest theologian from the Antioch school. Now, here's the difference between the two. Firstly, Alexandria is allegory. And what this means is that everything in the text has a particular meaning. So for instance, a seamless robe, um, the way that Alexandria would have interpreted that is that the robe stood for the church and the church has no seams. The church is just one garment always in unity. Therefore, the argument would go from an Alexandrian type of theology, therefore, Jesus is making a point because he had a seamless robe about the church. Now, Origen would do this, and he would basically, essentially, be able to kind of teach however he wanted to and and make anything fit what he wanted when it came to the text. Now, Antioch was a different school of thought. Antioch is more historical, grammatical, so it's making a look at the text and not trying to take assumptions of what the text doesn't necessarily say. This is much more the way that we have worked here at Crosswalk Church, making sure we understand the context, making sure we understand what's being said. Because remember, John was just telling the story at this point. John wasn't necessarily trying to make an allegorical point or use it as a metaphor. And so um, that's... And it's weird that I'm saying this. I mean, right, why am I telling you this? Because it seemed like we're just dealing with a text, and why are you jumping into this? The reason why is because it has a direct impact on how we look at the text that's about to come up, how we look about what's about to happen. Again, it says they took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Now, that's a nice piece of, um, that's a nice suit coat, all from one piece. But if it's used as an Alexandrian, if you interpret it as Alexandrian, again, it would have been the unity of the church, which is not to be broken. It sounds good, but it can be weird. Antioch would say, hey, let's not make that assumption. But the, the assumption that Antioch could make is that this is prophecy fulfilled. Why? Because, and even though John is the only one who recounts this story in connection with the prophecy, he's going to quote scripture, which is really important when we get there. But the scripture is from Psalm 22. So this is what happens. In chapter 19, verse 24, John continues. He says, so 
They said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. So they gambled for it. Now, when they said throw dice, we don't know that they necessarily throw di- threw dice. On the, the cobblestones or the big road stones, we could call them, in the old city of Jerusalem, there are certain games of chance that are kind of carved into the stone. We don't know if it was dice necessarily. Let's not get the idea that the Roman soldiers were like, all right, here we go. Ah, sevens. I don't know if you're supposed to get sevens or not, but um, I I think I've heard that in a movie or something. However, it's not necessarily that they were throwing dice, but they were gambling for it. The New Living Translation uses throwing dice. Not every translation uses that particular one. But it says this, this fulfilled scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. This comes from Psalm 22:18, which says very simply, they divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. Again, the New Living Translation. Now, this is the prophecy, prophecy to which John is referring. John wrote later on than the rest of the Synoptic Gospels, and so his hindsight might be a little clearer or a little stronger at times than the other Gospels. He's had another 20-so years to reflect on what, the other, on what the synoptic Gospels, we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what they have actually said. Um, listen, I know this is a lot in just two verses, and if this is the first time you've been checking in because your church is canceled this week and so you thought you'd come and enjoy the online experience with us, um, we want you to understand that we like to go through Scripture and exegete and get as deep as we can. So why do we make this point? John makes this point because of the heresy that has slipped into the church at the time. By 100 AD, there was already Christological heresies that were within the church. And your Christology is important. And John was solidifying this. He wanted people to understand. So let's ask this question. If we're going to bring it home, what is your Christology? What do you believe Jesus to be? And I know this sounds like a silly question to Christians, right? It sounds like a silly question, but it's really the only question. It's kind of the first question and the last question that we need to ask ourselves. The truth is, we're talking about Jesus's clothes. What does this have to do with Christology? Um, If you're Alexandria, you've made an argument for the church. What we understand here in this particular text, in this pericope, this portion of text that we will continue to study What we understand is that there's a Christology happening. We're seeing how Jesus responds to a crisis, and that helps us understand who Jesus is. So when I ask, what is your Christology? What do you believe Jesus to be? It's a real and important question. Why? Because your Christology has a direct effect upon your soteriology. What I mean by that is, in other words, what you think of Christ affects how you believe you are saved. You see, if you think Christ was not fully divine and you think he was just a human who was adopted by God, that's heresy. If you believe that he was divine but he was never human at all, again, that's heresy. And John was making the argument in his book right from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. These are Christological statements that John is making for us to understand that Christ was fully human and Christ was fully divine. This has huge implications, right? Here are the implications. He's like us, but he's even more than us. He experiences what we experience, yet he has a different vantage point. And what we say, the the theological term, and you've heard me say this before probably, is that his divinity 
was quiescent. So he was fully human, fully divine, but his divinity was quiescent or shrouded. He didn't call upon it. In that way, he was the new Adam, as Paul makes argument for. In that way, he died for our sins. And, and it's really incredibly important. Your Christology really affects your soteriology. If you're not sure what Jesus was, you, don't, you can't really be sure what he did. And, and let me be 100% clear on what he did. This is what I think Jesus did. And this is what I know Jesus did, um, to be clear. He died for us on the cross and saved us from our sins. He was resurrected from the dead and he overcame death through that, the effects of sin. We are saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through faith for what he did on the cross and he is now alive, ascended up into heaven. This is what we believe and who we believe Jesus to be. Fully God, fully divine, fully human and not just an incredible example for us but a God who saves us and loves us incredibly. And I know all that wasn't in the text, but all that we need to understand so we can understand that it's not just a metaphor for the unity of the church, but we're talking about Jesus, who is God here. But then we see a change in narrative happen in this text. We move from what the soldiers were doing to what Jesus is doing. And what Jesus is doing is experiencing a crisis. We are all experiencing a crisis right now. But no matter what we see, the crisis that Jesus is dealing with, we also see that he cares deeply for people. So standing near the cross, this is verse 25, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, sometimes people get a little confused at who all was standing there. Um, the way the text is written is a little um, clunky, I guess I would say. It's a little bit clunky. Best scholarship, I believe, says that there were four people there. Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, then Mary, the wife of Clopas, who I think was a wealthy gentleman at the time, and then Mary Magdalene. So we've got four. Sometimes the way it's written, Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So some people think there might be three, but it seems to me that the best scholarship says there were four women there. And this is important, that the women were there. Right? Because we don't see that many disciples. These guys who followed him, they didn't have the courage to be there when Jesus was being killed and crucified on the, on the cross. It's really easy for us to say, oh, men should do this or men should do that. But when we see in scripture that the ones who decided to be courageous, the ones who were not afraid, were the ones who were standing in front of him by majority, they were women. That's pretty important. And I think that gives us a, a great argument that, oh, that argument that women are just as capable, if not more capable, of doing a phenomenal ministry as men do. Anyway, we'll jump back in. That's a little bit of a side note. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple, he loved. Now, let's, let's wait on that for a moment. Well, I'll finish the text. It says, he said to her, dear woman, this is your son. But let's linger a moment on this, this phrase, the disciple he loved. A couple things are going on here, right? First of all, John wrote his own story. And because he wrote his own story, he could say what he wanted to say about himself. Secondly, he wrote this story so much later that there was nobody really around to argue with him anymore. So he could say, this is the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, I gotta ask you this question. If you were writing your own story, how can you be the editor of it? What does it take to be the one who writes your own story in conjunction with what Jesus is doing in your life? You know, when we give testimony to God, 
We have an opportunity to write our own story in Jesus. When we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, we have an opportunity to call ourselves by those names that the disciple gave themselves. And John gave himself the disciple that Jesus loved because he was so sure of how much God loved him. Of course, they all could have said that, but John was the one who was ready to own it and ready to claim it. When we tell our testimony, perhaps we can do the same thing. I'm the one that Jesus deeply loves. Because remember, Jesus' love for me does not preclude his love for you. It does not preclude his ability to love everyone in the same incredible amount. So if I tell you that I'm the pastor that Jesus loves, that doesn't mean he doesn't love other pastors. It doesn't mean that he loves you less. I'm just owning the fact that Jesus loves me. You gotta be the editor of your own testimony, the editor of your own story as it comes to the relationship that you have with Jesus. Jumping back into the text, and he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. Jesus gave them to each other. And he did this so that family could continue. You see, even in the midst of a crisis, and I got to tell you, hanging on a cross, that's a crisis, I mean, we're dealing with a crisis here in North, not just North America, in the whole world. We're dealing with a crisis, but hanging on a cross, that's a crisis. And in the midst of that, Jesus gave them to each other. Jesus was always taking care of others, even in the midst of his own worst time. And what I love is that John's response was immediate because he says, now from then on, then on, his, his mother took him, John's, that was John's mother. He took her into his home. He did it immediately. So here's my question to you. How quickly do you respond to the requests from God in your life? Right? How quickly do you respond when God requests something of you? How do you move when he calls you? And God will always call you. You know this, right? Jesus will always call you. And in the midst of crisis, he will often call you to more love, to more family, to more grace. I mean, what does family look like in a crisis? Right? When, when a crisis happens, does the family begin to fight and argue? Some do, of course, some do, because they're, they're not great at communicating or they haven't set those systems up. What you want family to do is to grab a hold of each other, to hold on to one another, to not just protect one another, but grow that family in the midst of a crisis, right? How about this? How do we show grace in a crisis like Jesus does? He says to his mother, hey, that's your son. He says to his friend, hey, that's your mother. Take care of one another. Show grace to one another in the midst of this. And by the way, they were going through crisis too. This wasn't just happening to Jesus. It was happening to them. They're standing watching their savior, this person that they had put everything into. They're watching him die. This is a crisis. Yet, they're showing grace in the midst of it. They're showing care. They're showing inclusion. They're caring for people. I gotta tell you, you know, we're gonna go, I don't know how long this crisis is gonna last, right? I, I hope it's done by next week and we can meet in church and everything's great, but I have a concern that it's gonna last a while and there's gonna be a lot of anxiety and we're gonna see, you know, some infrastructure fall apart. I do have fear of that. Now, I can respond by saying this is the worst thing, terrible, and I'm gonna, you know, pull out weapons and do whatever, and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna make sure I protect my family. I get those ideas. I get the anxiety that goes along with this, but I see Jesus hanging on a cross, showing grace. This is your son. This is your mother. They weren't sons and mothers. 
But they were given to one another to be family. This is grace in a crisis. How we respond to people, how we take care of people. And it's easy for us, and it will be easy for us to to engage in the anxiety-creating situation that we might be in. And I get it. Sometimes I don't agree with people going, hey, everybody, just take a deep breath. I mean, I like us to. But at the same time, this is a real thing that's going on. When Jesus was hanging on a cross, that was a real thing that was going on. It will be easy for us to fall into self-protection. It'll be easy for us to simply say, I'm going to watch out for my own. Nobody else matters. But in a crisis, we saw something different from Jesus. And by the way, how we respond in a crisis shows the world who God is. It doesn't just show the world how we respond. Because we've claimed something more than the world has claimed. We claim we believe in Jesus. We claim we follow Jesus. We claim that, that we are people who reflect who Jesus is. So the way that we respond in a crisis certainly makes a difference when it comes to how they view who God is. You know, I think it was, I think it was Mr. Rogers who in responding to a kid who was very nervous about something that was happening in a crisis, he said, listen, if you want hope, all you gotta do is look for the helpers. Watch for the helpers. Because if you see the people who are out there helping other people, when you do that, you begin to realize there's not only good in the world, but there's people who will put themselves in harm's way to actually take care of other people. You know what this is, right? What this is is the tangible, hey, this is your mother, this is your son kind of conversation. And I think, I think from all of our sites, I think from all the churches that have this crosswalk name, I think one of the most important things we can do is not just watch for the helpers, but be the helpers. Figure out ways that we can bless the community, that we can give to the community, that we can bring the community in. I think if we do that, we show the world who Jesus is. Rather than simply, you know, backing off into our own conclave and making sure nobody takes what we have, if we stepped into a place of leadership when it came to helping the world because we've decided we will inconvenience ourselves in order to help other people. Man, I, I, think, of, I think of Casey Graves, who talked to us a little bit about responding to the coronavirus today. You've seen it in our, our Connect piece. He's going to put himself in harm's way every time he walks into that hospital. He's one of the helpers. All you healthcare professionals, you're helpers. People who have decided we're not just going to sit in our homes, but we're going to make the world a better place, even in the midst of a crisis, even when there might be danger at times, and I certainly hope it never comes to that. But, but are we the kind of people who step out and become the helpers so that when a little kid who is full of anxiety about what's going on in the world and is not sure of their place in the world, when all that happens... When they watch for the helpers, they see you. They see me. How we respond in a crisis tells the world who Jesus is in that crisis, and that transcends the crisis. People recognize, well, I don't know who Jesus is, but man, the people who follow him, they're willing to take care of us. They're willing to mean something to us. They're willing to create places and safe harbors for us 
They're willing to be a light in the darkness. They're willing to be the anchor that keeps people from falling into panic. They're willing to be leaders in the midst of really difficult things. That's what we need to be called to be, and that's what we need to do. We need to respond to that call that God gives. This is your mother. But he could have said, this is your brother, this is your sister, this is your neighbor, this is your community member, this is somebody who is now yours. You need to take responsibility for them and find a way to take care of them through this crisis. The question becomes, how do we love in a crisis? Because, man, when things are going well, when money's coming into the church, when money's coming into your life, when everything is easy and everything's accessible, it might be a little bit easier to love. It is much harder to love in times of anxiety. But you know, love creates this kind of steadfastness. Love creates this kind of calm. Love creates this kind of, hey, we're gonna be okay because we do have love. Now I understand what I'm saying is aspirational, right? Because we're about to go through something. Who knows what we're going through? But, but by all, for all intents and purposes, it seems like it's a little bit anxiety creating. And I could be a pastor, certainly, that stands up here and says, see, the end of the world is coming. And listen, I hope it is. I hope Jesus comes today. But I don't want to leverage your fear. I don't want to prey on your anxiety. What I want you to do is become a group of people that live beyond it. Because you have to live beyond it. Because we're called to something more. We're called to the, to the transcendence of love that is expressed in the name of Jesus in the midst of crisis. It will be love that is unreasonable. It will be, lo it'll be love that is, that is unusual. It'll be love that is unprecedented as we move into unprecedented times. Because if we're not that, then what have we been doing? Just hanging out in a country club when things were great? Listen, I'm all for it. That sounds good. But now is the time when our faith will be tested. Now could be the time when we have to really believe in the love of Jesus Christ and the abundance of Christ in the midst of what could become very real scarcity. Listen, it's not going to be our fear and anxiety that brings us through. Jesus could have been on that cross saying, woe is me. Look how horrible this is. This hurts a lot. He didn't say any of those words. He said, this is, this is your son. This is your mother. Take care of each other. Make sure the other person is safe because you've been willing to engage in them and engage in their care and engage in their love. If we don't do that, if we don't do that, if we don't respond differently than the world does to a crisis, then what's the point? What have we been doing? Have we been serious about our faith at all? Our faith will be tested. Our faith is the only thing that can push back fear. And you know, my hope is that it's not that bad that we wake up in a few weeks and we all go, wow, that was interesting, that was crazy. Hope that doesn't happen again. Maybe we learn. Maybe we grow as a nation or we grow as a world. As, uh, we grow as humanity. I hope that's the case. But if it's not, and things get a little crazy for a little while, who are we going to be? What will that narrative be that we tell our children and our grandchildren? That the history books say there was a group of people 
that did not succumb to fear, that did not succumb to panic, but decided that they were absolutely going to lean into the faith of Jesus Christ and show people what it means to help, what it means to love. They adopted people to be part of their family and they showed the love of Christ in the midst of a crisis. And when I talk about that, I get excited. My heart races a little bit more. Why? Not because it's an opportunity to lift ourselves up, but it's an opportunity in the darkest night to show hope. It's an opportunity when you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel to be the light in the tunnel. We can be that because we know who Jesus is. We understand his grace. We understand his mercy. But we also understand his strength and his power. How do we love in a crisis? We love like Jesus did. We give each other to one another and take care of one another. We have to do it that way. Because if we're followers of Christ, then we've got to follow him through the cross into the grave and out the other side. We have to, with courage and with mercy and with grace and with compassion, we have to walk into this world and we have to go, hey, 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 everyone take a breath because God is in charge here. And it's not going to feel like that all the time. It may feel incredibly different than that. It may feel like we're out of control. But the truth is we never had control because Jesus has always been in control. So as we pray today, as we move into a final time of worship, let's ask God for courage, for peace, for grace. Let's ask him for family. And let's respond like Christ would in a crisis by helping one another and taking care of one another. Let's bow our heads. Lord of grace, I don't know what's coming. I have fear, I have anxiety, I think we all do. But at the same time, Lord, we believe that that you can carry us through. If we don't believe that, then what have we been doing all this time? Lord, we wanna be followers of you in the hard times and in the good times. We love the good times and we want more of those, Lord, but we're willing to be serious followers of you in the midst of a hard time. Lord, may we be grace, may we be family, may we be love, and may we continue to grow your name in the midst of whatever this world has for us because we know that you are still on your throne. You are still our refuge and strength. Lord, be our safe place. In your name I pray, amen.